Our scripture reading is from Psalm 131. It's a song of ascents of David. Psalm 131. Hear now the reading of God's word for us today. Uh, Listen carefully. These are God's words. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen. I think I can say it with all sincerity. My heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I get it. When the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi and says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and explains how Christ emptied himself and took a course of extreme humility uh, without boasting. I could say I'm not usually proud and haughty. However, I can't say, as the psalmist David says in the psalm that we read, that I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. I can't say that. I do. I concern myself with things that I can't figure out. Great matters. It it worries me. It upsets me that there's trouble in the Ukraine. Uh, I'm grieved when I hear of Christians in Syria uh, being killed. I'm frustrated uh, when Maternal mortality is a huge, huge issue in our day, and nobody seems to care. And so I don't get it when David, the king, who writes this psalm, the person that should concern himself with great matters, should be the one that's thinking about unsolvable problems, says that he's not. He's the king, after all. And if he's not concerned about these things, then who is? I confess it. I'm concerned about matters and things that are too wonderful for me to figure out. Uh, I was in East Africa during reading week. I was teaching a course for clergy. Uh, There were a number of Roman Catholic priests and sisters. Uh, There were a number of Protestant uh, priests, Anglicans, and some from more faith church and free church traditions, Pentecostals and Charismatics and others, as well as a number of Muslim Amans. And they came together because they'd asked me to do a course on pastoral care for those affected by Maternal mortality, death of mothers. 
And we'd think, what in the world would you need a course like that? And apparently in their country where 20, according to Dr. Florence Marembi, the head of the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists for Uganda, in that country where 20 mums a day die in childbirth from preventable causes, these clergy have to do funeral after funeral after funeral for families that are grieving the loss of a mother. Uh, here in Canada, it's not 20 mums a day. It's about 14 a year. And our countries have about the same population. So it's become a concern of mine because I looked them in the eye. And in their world, they have to deal with this kind of loss. I think we'd all agree with the truth that every life has value, male or female, young or old. And unfortunately, it seems parts of the world, sub-Saharan Africa, for example, Afghanistan, Haiti, some parts of India, Southeast Asia. Some lives are valued far less than others. I was reminded of that reality during reading week. And it concerns me. Uh, if truth be known, it makes me angry. Uh, societal attitudes toward the value of women and children in much of the developing world needs to change. Uh, while there is evidence that societal attitudes are starting to shift slowly, good intentions are not enough. Uh, that's because when good intentions are misdirected, uh, they can result in even greater harm. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, and one of these examples, and probably both, is why I got mad, really mad, uh, when officials blamed health workers after a laboring woman bled to death in a Mabali hospital a few months ago, I was upset. The woman died not due to negligence on the part of those who cared for her, but because the hospital wasn't equipped with the necessary medical supplies and life-saving blood. But after being unjustly accused, arrested, publicly shamed, charged, and then released, uh, the doctor involved, who happened to be the sole obstetrician in the area, uh, left the country to work in a less hostile environment in South Africa. Uh, today, uh, the community that, that he left, uh, 500,000 people, uh, is without any obstetrician. I also got mad when confronted with the reality that Ugandan men are offered free circumcisions. Now that would make you mad, I'm sure, but as an approach to reducing the transmission of HIV AIDS. And I have to give you some context. I visited a number of hospitals in East Africa over the last couple of years, 
And what I've always been astounded at is you go into the hospitals and you go into the HIV AIDS section and it's like a five-star hotel. And then you go over to the maternity ward where the future of the nation is being born and women are giving birth like dogs on the floor in squalor with blood everywhere. HIV AIDS seems to get all of the attention. Uh, even in our media in the last couple of days, all we hear about Uganda is the statements and the laws of the land related to homosexuality. But nobody, nobody talks about the number of mums that are dying. So at one local healthcare facility, uh, Kowolo Hospital in Jinja, on the road between Kampala on the way to Kenya, uh, a regional hospital not like, unlike North York General, uh, these men were in for their circumcisions. And a mobile surgical unit bus with great big beautiful graphics on the outside. The nicest looking vehicle I saw while in the area. Uh, drives up and men come in to get their circumcision. And those circumcision patients took up nearly all the space in the operating theater. Uh, not to mention the attention of the medical staff. At least three times more of the medical staff were assigned to one man's care than were assigned to a laboring woman who needed an emergency cesarean section. In order for that woman to get the care that she needed to save her life and the life of her baby, uh, there was a mandatory $60 fee. Whereas the men who were getting circumcision were being paid to have the surgery, elective surgery. And the physicians who were doing this surgery and their assistants were also getting paid per procedure. Uh, my colleague, a Canadian obstetrician and McMaster professor, called me and she said, Dan, you're going to have to come over and bail me out of jail because I lost it at the Koala Hospital. I went into the operating theater where the men were re in recovery. And I empathize with their recovery, to be sure. And she said, I lost it and I started screaming and I drove those men like Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple I drove them out of the operating theater and I said, you boys can recover somewhere else. This woman's going to die unless we do something. One woman's life was saved. Uh, but around the globe, uh, 800 women a day continued to die from pregnancy and childbirth related complications. And they're preventable causes. They are things that we can do something about. And so when I say I can say with sincerity that my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty. I can also say that I do concern myself with these great matters. And things beyond my ability to figure out and to solve things too wonderful for me. Perhaps I need to learn like the psalmist did. He says, the king, I've calmed and 
quieted myself. I'm like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. I like the image that the psalmist David uses in this case. A weaned child with its mother. In our day, there are four million orphans, children that are made orphans every single year. And we seem to react to that and we send money to the difficult and heart-wrenching commercials that we see for care of orphans. And we should. But there's a factory producing those orphans and we should shut down those factories. I need to be reminded from this psalm to calm myself, to quiet myself, to be like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child content. I need to be reminded that the Christian faith is, is not a neurotic dependency, but a childlike trust. We don't have a God who forever indulges our whims, but a God whom we trust with our destinies. I need to be reminded that the Christian is not a naive, innocent infant who has an identity apart from a feeling of being comforted and protected and catered to, but a person who has discovered an identity that is given by God, which can be enjoyed best and fully voluntarily by a voluntary trust in God. Now, we don't cling to God desperately out of fear or out of the panic of necessity. We come to him freely in faith and love. Our Lord gave us that wonderful picture of a child. Not because of the child's willingness to be led, because of the child's helplessness, but because of that child's willingness to be taught and to be blessed and to follow. God doesn't want us with some Pavlovian response mechanism where we just knee-jerk mindlessly worship and pray and obey on cue and on single signal. Uh, he gives us and graces us with dignity in which we are free to receive his words, to receive his gifts, to receive his grace. Uh, this psalm, this tiny little psalm, three little verses, 133, uh, shows great genius at this point. Uh, that's Eugene Peterson's word. Uh, in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, the book that the people that have been planning these chapels have been reading as ways of focusing their thoughts on the Psalms of Ascent. The psalm shows great genius at that point and describes a relationship, says Peterson, which is completely attractive. I've stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And he says... That last phrase, as a weaned child, creates a new unguessed reality. Now, the Christian is not like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breaths, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. Now, the transition I understand from 
a sucking infant to a weaned child, from a squalling baby to a quiet son or daughter, is not smooth. Uh, there are fits, there are tempers, there are tears, there are, and that's just the mother and the father, there are <laughs> sleepless nights, there is agony and gloom and despair. Uh, it's easier, I think, to, to, to tame the waves that we sang about or to tame a tiger than it is to tame a, a child. It's a pitched battle. Uh, that child is losing some of the sensible comforts that he or she has grown attached to. And it's war. Uh, I endured this three times, and over a course of about 10 years, some of you have had way more kids than I have, and you know all about it. After the 10 years of weaning our three kids, one morning my wife woke up and she said, you know what, I can see the world in color again. Uh, it, it was black and white for so long, I've been so sleep deprived, weaning, as she said, your children. <laughs> It's, it's, it's tough stuff. I remember with our first, who was hands down the hardest on every scale and still is at 24. Uh, to wean him was a challenge. And he was one of those kids that loved a pacifier. You know, those soother kinds of things. You maybe know it from The Simpsons if you haven't experienced one on your own. But he, he, he just seemed to need this thing all the time. And he was always too large for his body. He was a big kid bigger than his age would have thought. And so he looked quite out of place in this big body, even though he was two, with this pacifier. And we would always say, you know, you should take that out of your mouth. And he would, if we did, it'd be World War VI, three, four, five. It already happened with this poor kid. And so in the night, we tried to get him to give it up. And we took it away. And he would scream from... 8 o'clock till 9 o'clock and 9 o'clock till 10 o'clock. And we were thinking, you know, give him some alcohol or something. <laughs> Get this kid to sleep. But we didn't. And finally, we would give him the pacifier and he'd fall asleep and life would be easy yet again until he woke up and realized it wasn't there. And we'd have to go in there in our black and white world and try and find this pacifier in his bed and we never could find it. Then we discovered they have glow-in-the-dark <laughs> pacifiers. We put it in and we get some sleep. We finally weaned him of this uh, in a completely unplanned, uh, not in any baby textbook that we ever read on how to wean your child. And it was, it was his own doing. Uh, he was slow on lots of fronts and slow to toilet train himself and his younger sister beat him to it. He'd die if I told him that I was telling this. <laughs> and he was standing doing what he needed to do. And as the water turned yellow, he went to say something. And the pacifier fell out into the toilet. <laughs> and he stopped cold turkey. <laughs> He was weaned. <laughs> and it was a great cause of rejoicing. 
But many of us who've traveled this way of faith have described this transition from an infantile faith that grabs at God out of desperation to a mature faith that responds to God out of love as a content child that's been weaned. Peterson talks about this and talks about how in our faith, this is a difficult, difficult thing. When we first come to faith, we're attracted by those sensible comforts. God seems so close to us. The fellowship of faith is wonderful. We can't wait to get to church. My parents were ones who were converted later in life, and, and, and they, they just couldn't get enough of going to church. And us poor kids, Sunday school, church, afternoon Sunday school at another church, and then evening church, and then after evening church, but they couldn't get enough of it. They just loved it. But it seems that those initial signs, wonders, those immediate responses to our prayers, sometimes it seems like God has moved. And Peterson says, I, people will say, and I hear this from students often, I no longer feel like I did when I was a first, as a new Christian. Does that mean I'm no longer a Christian? Has God abandoned me? Have I done something terribly wrong? And he answers his own question and says, the answer is neither. God hasn't abandoned you and you haven't done anything wrong. You're being weaned, baby. Oh, I put that in. Eugene didn't have that. Uh, the apron strings have been cut. You're free to come to God or not to come to him. You're in a sense on your own with an open invitation to listen and to receive and to enjoy your Lord. I think I need to learn what the psalmist was talking about. I recognize I need to be weaned. I need to learn to be still. Uh, to borrow the words from uh, that classic rock band, The Eagles. And they wrote a song that said, learn to be still. I need to learn that. And to hope. Uh, the psalm ends with a wonderful little phrase, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. Hope in the Lord. Some of my hope for maternal mortality rests in the work of very dedicated people, motivated by their strong Christian faith. Uh, many of you know I took a leave of absence from Tyndale to help set up an organization and the infrastructure uh, for a group that was founded by a Canadian obstetrician as a project under InterServe. Um, she's a McMaster professor. She's a childhood friend of my wife. And when we had her come to speak at our church uh, after we were out for dinner with her, uh, my wife said to me later in the day, uh, Dan, you can play at Tyndale for the rest of your life and you won't do anything of value or meaning. Help my friend Jean. I think she was facetious, but I got the point. And so she asked me to help her out. The organization's called Save the Mothers. It operates 
a master in public health leadership program at Uganda Christian University. Uh, to date, over 300 East African leaders, professionals, have been trained. Uh, people from fields of law, uh, politics, education, the media, business, education, clergy. And they've been trained in the causes and the solutions to maternal death. But that's just a start. Uh, these societal leaders, five members of parliament, numbers of mayors, school teachers, media people, the head of New Vision as an example, a, a Globe and Mail type paper in Uganda. They need to be trained into networks so that they can try to bring about long-term change. It's kind of like how anti-smoking legislation and practice happened here in Canada. As a kid, I remember going to get my medicals filled in to go to Circle C Ranch in Delavan, New York, and I had to go to my doctor here in Weston, Ontario, Dr. Peterson, and he would get out his stethoscope, sit me up on the table, and he'd light up. <laughs> and he'd take the biggest drag on his cigarette, and then he would listen while he held his breath to my heartbeat and other things, other sounds in my body. You can't imagine smoking anywhere today in a public place, let alone your pediatrician lighting up before he examines a child. But the change came about because not only medical doctors, but politicians, but journalists and media people, business people, teachers, all began to work together. And so we've been trying to help these people to bring about change. There's lots of work to be done, but there is hope. No doubt you too have things on your mind that are beyond your ability uh, to sort out. Uh, maternal mortality happens to be one on my mind. Yours might be, and I'm so pleased in George's introduction, he always does these things so well. He says, things that are on your mind, maybe it's, how am I going to make it through the term? Uh, how am I going to pay for my tuition? How am I going to find a summer job? Those are concerns that students have at this time of year. 25 days till the end of term? My goodness, the pile of marking on my desk is never going to go away. But in Journey Chapels, as we're thinking about moving from here to there, think about the great concerns on the minds of many. How are we going to make this move, the logistics? How are we going to fit into new classrooms? How are we going to get them ready? Uh, what are we going to charge for these new dorms decorated by Bed Bath & Beyond for staging for kids that are coming in to see the place? How are we going to get it all? <laughs> I read that in an email. I, 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 I think it's fabulous that we stage things in our dorms with Bed Bath & Beyond. But how, how's this all going to happen? How are we going to get it done? We need to, as David the psalmist says, to quiet ourselves, to still ourselves. We need to learn to be still, like a weaned child with its mother. Put your hope in the Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I am not proud. I do not concern myself with things too great for me or things too weighty 
and wonderful for me. But I've stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul at rest within me. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our God, we have many things on our minds, the pressures, the difficulties, the GPA that we're worried about. Help us to learn to be still, to be like a weaned child at rest with you, putting our hope in you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Randy Henderson, who works uh, here at Tyndale and was, uh, does our finances and things, uh, went to a remarkable event uh, when he was in the corporate world, and he said, after the event happened, uh, there was a large curtain at the front of the room, and they moved the curtain back, and there was the Eagles ready to perform. We couldn't afford the Eagles today, uh, but as we go, listen to them as they sing, learn to be still. <laughs> 